0: podcast public service announcement you're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc if you haven't heard the previous episodes we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order all right paranoid strain orchestra hit it We're not going to go in-depth on the history and impact of the Freemasons now because we're going to devote the lion's share of our new 2021 content to the history of all the major secret societies that conspiracists have obsessed over throughout the ages, including the Illuminati, the Templars, the Rosicrucians, and many more, but definitely the Masons.
1: He assures me that these shows are going to... Nope, I'm not going to read that.
0: Um, Dana, we've talked about this. I write the scripts, you say the things, and the deal is you get all the funny lines, so please read it.
1: No, I have some dignity. This is worse than when you made me do the Scottish accent for David Hume.
0: Say it, Dana. No. Say it.
1: Fine. He assures me that these shows are going to be amazing. See?
0: Hilarious.
1: Fuck you, I quit. Thinks he can make me read any old bullshit he writes. ranks, Worst fucking pun I've ever heard. A um, Mason. What is wrong with him? He can do his own goddamn dulcet Northern European injections from now on. Or get a trained monkey or something. Goodbye and good riddance.
0: Well, this took an unexpected turn. I'm really going to miss her. Jeez. Oh, shit, that's right. I just remembered that since I write all this nonsense, by extension, I wrote that little dust-up, and so, QED, I think I can get her back by typing... Hey there, Jesuit. Jesuit. Just Just joking. joking. All is is forgiven. forgiven.
1: Glad Glad to to be be
0: part of the the team. team. I love love puns. puns. Excellent. Now, where was I? Oh, yes, all of that. Uh, A-Mason. Ugh content is coming your way next year. But we still have to pause a moment here to note that concern about the Masons' influence on the colonies and the young United States was widespread and deeply felt. Why? Well, that requires a bit of backstory. Remember way back in our first episode, we discussed the fact that conspiracy thinking was inextricably linked to the entire endeavor of revolution
1: for the patriots
0: and counter-revolution for the Tories, and that the Constitution itself was seen as a backstabbing power grab by the Federalists at least in the opinion of the anti-federalists. In his book The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, author Bernard Bailyn suggests that the colonists, separated from England and therefore the goings-on at Parliament by thousands of miles and weeks of time, were convinced by many local sources that their representative government was being undermined and subverted by sinister forces in the king's administration. Reading this material leads to the rather uncomfortable feeling.
1: At least for those of us who are both Americans and inclined to align ourselves against whatever conspiracy theories are fanning the flames at any given moment.
0: That a hypothetical 18th century, the Old Town Crier edition of Ye Paranoid uh, Strain. uh,
1: I know you can't see them, but please trust that there is a bunch of extra E's in that title.
0: Anyway, your humble narrator, and probably a lot of you, would be, for very good reasons, dismissing as bogus the same rumors and purported outrages that sparked many American colonists to take up arms against the motherland. That is, I think I would be inveighing against the same conspiracy theories that drove popular support for the revolution in the first place. We like to think we would be on the side of cooler heads. For example, Balin quotes a founding father, John Dickinson, an American patriot and also, obviously, a born anti-conspiracist, who ruefully reflects on how easily his fellow patriots could be stirred to furious reaction on the slimmest evidence against the king, that every little royal or parliamentary decision that might in and of itself not have had a huge impact on the colonies came to be seen as part of a system of oppression
1: every one therefore however small in itself became alarming as an additional evidence of tyrannical designs it was in vain for prudent and moderate men to insist that there was no necessity to abolish royalty nothing less than the utter destruction of the monarchy could satisfy those who had suffered and thought that they had reason to believe they always should suffer under it the consequences of these mutual distrusts are well known
0: Similarly, Peter Van Schock, a New Yorker, was well aware that Parliament and the Crown were running roughshod over the colonies, but he still realized many of the most inflammatory accusations and the deliberate conspiracy they were used to gin up were ill-founded.
1: Most of them seem to have sprung out of particular occasions and are unconnected with each other. In short, I think those acts may have been passed without a preconcerted plan of enslaving us.
0: The Tories, that is, those who remained loyal to the British crown even as the revolution erupted, also thought themselves beset on all sides by conspiracies, though of course theirs were coming from the other direction. One Thomas Hutchinson, who had been living in England since 1774, having left due to fears of reprisal for his loyalist views, wrote, Strictures upon the Declaration of the Congress of Philadelphia to prove that,
1: If no taxes or duties had been laid upon the colonies, other pretenses would have been found for exception to the authority of Parliament there were men in each of the principal colonies who had independence in view before any of those taxes were laid or proposed professions of loyalty and concessions were only intended to amuse the authority in england
0: And, as Balin notes, the idea that one side or the other during the Revolutionary War was actually just a cover for a sinister conspiracy didn't end with the American victory. The opposing sides just went from sloganeering to battling views of historiography.
1: The 18th century was an age of ideology. The beliefs and fears expressed on one side of the revolutionary controversy were as sincere as those expressed on the other.
0: As mentioned earlier, This suspicion on all sides continued through the period of the Constitutional Convention. Again, we covered this in episode one.
1: Recently re-upped in the feed as part of our archive series.
0: So we're not going deep here, but we did want to call out the uniquely vitriolic language Balin records from
1: Samuel Bryan's 18-part Sentinel series in the Philadelphia Independent Gazetteer, a foaming diatribe against those harpies of power the criminal conspirators against liberty who shield their secrets and tensions with the virtues of a Washington, blatantly lie to the public and shackle the press to suppress opposition. In fact, do anything, no matter how foul and vicious, to fob off on the people the most odious system of tyranny that was ever projected.
0: Again, that's the Constitution.
1: A many-headed hider of despotism, whose complicated and various evils would be infinitely more oppressive and afflictive than the scourge of any single tyrant.
0: Not that Bryant could identify those who were instigating this plot to enslave the free, mind you. But he did save special vitriol for Ben Franklin, who in his telling,
1: hoodwinked the innocent Washington by inducing him to acquiesce in a system of despotism and villainy at which enlightened
0: patriotism shudders. Poor Richard, indeed quick aside here.
1: Didn't you just say that the whole revolutionary bit was an aside? Is this an aside to your aside?
0: Yeah, Unicorn, but don't get all weird about it. I just have to mention that there is, in our own superlatively weird and postmodern period, another group that believes that the American Revolution was in fact a vast conspiracy to gain popular support for a terrible cause. That cause being representative democracy. We might get back to this at some point, but we have to plead with you to look up the modern supporters of what is called the Dark Enlightenment, a movement dedicated to the reinstitution of benevolent monarchy, combined with a sort of corporate-friendly authoritarianism. Specifically, look up the endless screeds penned by one Curtis Yarvin.
1: Internet pen name, Mencius Moldbug.
0: Especially if you're interested in seeing just how far one overly educated, kind of alt-right friendly computer geek can go in defense of an idea so preposterous even the flat earthers would look askance at it.
2: What's amazing about debunking the American Revolution is that now in 2020, nobody actually gives a shit about it. You can basically go and be in a bar and be like, man, the British were right. We should still be under King George III.
0: And they will be like, man, that's cool. It's so cool that you think that. Anyway, to get back to our brief tour of post-revolutionary anti-Masonic fervor, we turn once again to Thomas Conda's work, where he notes that this, perhaps the first truly American conspiracy theory, was born a few decades into the infancy of the New Republic. It all started in 1826, when William Morgan, a former Mason who had decided to publish a tell-all expose of his time in the Masons…
1: Again, we'll go deep on these folks later, but for the moment, let's limit ourselves to noting that they are a secretive order to which a huge number of movers and shakers in colonial and early post-revolutionary society belonged, including John Hancock, Aaron Burr, Ben Franklin, and even Washington himself.
0: Anyway, Morgan was apparently pissed that he wasn't accepted fully into the Masonic order and threatened to reveal their secrets, at which point we'll let this charming, extremely local historian narrate what happened in the Batavia area of New York.
2: Uh, If you don't let me into the Masons, I will publish your secrets. And uh, they said, well, you got to do what you got to do. And so William Morgan started publishing the secrets. Now, the question is, if he was only went to a couple meetings, how did he already know the secrets? Well, they're not sure, but they really think that he plagiarized the ideas from a book that was released on the Masonic secrets that was released in England about two or three years beforehand. So William Morgan decides to publish secrets Uh, a few masons here in batavia uh, a few overzealous masons threatened him Uh, they threatened him with bodily harm they tried to burn down the printing press the uh, the printing the print shop the print shop was here in batavia you can kind of visualize where m t bank is today that's where the print shop was then he's immediately re-arrested on the charge that he didn't pay and he borrowed a tie uh, shirt and tie worth $2.61 that he'd never returned. He's rearrested, he's thrown in jail. The jailer, he's got to go off and do some business. The jailer's wife is there looking after the prisoners. A Couple guys come up to say we want to pay Mr. Morgan's bail. Finally, the jailer's wife says sure go ahead and William Morgan his uh, bail is paid, he walks out, A couple guys grab him, he yells out murder, 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 yelled it three times, they throw him in the back of a carriage and that's the last he's ever seen the anti-Masons, what they say happened was they rode William Morgan out into the river, they they, uh, threw a a chain around him, threw him overboard, and he drowned right there in the Niagara River. Nobody knows what had actually happened.
0: Regardless of what fate actually befell Morgan, he and his book were never heard from again. And as Conda notes, people understandably assumed he had been murdered by the Freemasons.
1: The incident was seized on by people who already found Masonry suspicious and by New York opponents of President Jackson, himself a Freemason. Fostered by friendly newspaper publishers and by New York politician Thurlow Weed, the movement was quickly transformed into a political party, the Anti-Masonic Party, That became quite successful in New York, as well as in Vermont and Pennsylvania.
0: Why, then, did anti-Mason sentiment find fertile ground in this area at this time? It appears, per Conda, that it all boiled down to the haves and have-nots. Specifically, all of the important movers and shakers in little towns throughout the young nation were emulating the example of leaders of the Revolution and the early Republic, who were disproportionately members of this secret society. In some sense, then, Masonic lodges had become the country clubs of their times. You know how the idea of a bunch of old white men running a small town via private discussions in golf foursomes at their country club really grinds the gears of all the cool, fun people in classic movies like Caddyshack? Well, the anti-Masonic conspiracy was, if you'll follow a tortured analogy here for a moment, the Rodney Dangerfield to this coterie of conspiring swells, showing up in the middle of their cozy, well-to-do secret society and just given no respect, no respect at all.
3: Oh, this is the worst-looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I'll bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? Oh, it looks good on you, though. Hey, everybody! We're all gonna get (laughs) late.
0: Of course, the non-Masonic citizens were right to suspect the sweetheart deals and backroom shenanigans that were part and parcel of lodge meetings at that time, just as they are in any period when wealthy men and women... But, let's face it, mostly men get together to pal around, get drunk, and divvy up the town's or state's or nation's resources in a way that benefits their cronies. As is too often the case, though, the suspicious minds turn these reasonable worries into truly bizarre theories, casting the good old boys' club of American Freemasonry as something vastly more sinister. Conda again.
1: Freemasonry suddenly became one of the greatest evils that ever existed in any age or country. An engine of Satan... The fraternity of privilege had been transformed into a conspiracy of criminal anti-republicanism. As this rhetoric proliferated, paranoia flourished. Anti-Masons undertook surveillance of lodge members. Questions about licentiousness in the all-male lodges arose. Speculation about Masonic rites and oaths became increasingly blood-soaked and occultish. Temperance advocates took a dim view of drinking wine from human skulls.
0: Still, Conda maintains, anti Masonry was centered on a real phenomenon, that is, the domination of early American political and business classes by members of one secret society. And as the popularity of membership in the Masons wore off, the Fuhrer subsided. In his words,
1: accordingly, anti Masonry is best thought of as a crusade with some conspiratorial thinking on its fringes.
0: The same cannot be said, however, for the next conspiracy that swept the nation
1: the anti Catholic conspiracy.
0: Admittedly, this one hits close to home. The pseudonym isn't a completely whimsical concoction. I named myself Fearful Jesuit after an epithet aimed at a James Joyce character because I identified so much with that character's Catholic background and upbringing. So anti-Catholicism, though I grew up too late to really experience it, seems like a real punch in the dick to the affected. But
1: did you know, Jesuit, that a major contributor to the anti-Catholic conspiracy feeling of the 1830s was actually the telegraph?
0: No, I did not, Dana, but that sounds fascinating. Please explain.
1: Well, it isn't really connected. That's just a line that helps us introduce the prominent position that Samuel Morse, inventor of the telegraph, played in convincing his fellow white American Anglo-Saxon Protestant brethren that their entire
0: way of life was threatened
1: by popish hordes.
0: But did he transmit those ideas via telegraph? I'm confused.
1: No, the telegraph was just a way of introducing Morse. You know what? Forget the Telegraph. Just get to the Samuel Morse stuff.
0: Yes, um, it's true, if a little surprising, that such an anodyne and ubiquitous staple of elementary-grade history classes as Samuel Morse, inventor of Morse code and the instrument that transmitted it, could have such a surprising and disturbing fixation. But Conda assures us that, under the name Brutus, Mr. Telegraph wrote...
1: A fully-fledged conspiracy theory. In his 1835 Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States complete with an organized hierarchy of manipulators behind
0: the scenes. This conspiracist Morse was our kind of cat, doling out a plot so weird it incorporated not just the Pope, but also the Chancellor of the Austrian Empire and the Holy Roman Emperor himself, Francis I, with both Protestant Prussia and Orthodox Russia, which weren't exactly strongholds of pro-Catholic sentiment, apparently conspired with an international Catholic cabal against our uniquely American liberties, and their agents
1: now organized every part of the country, from the most abject dolt that obeys the command of his priest, and up through the Catholic
0: hierarchy. We can take comfort, though, in the fact that this book was probably not that influential because it took so much time to type it out in dots and dashes. For Christ's sake, have some dignity. Nah, man, we're good. But for real, lest you suppose I'm dredging up some long-forgotten misstep by a great American inventor, this stuff is still influential. Just listen to this anti-Catholic YouTube loon dole out Morse's Pearls of Wisdom on the topic of the Catholic Jesuit order. ...and despotism required their useful labors to resist the light of democratic liberty, and the Pope Pius VII, simultaneously with the formation of the Holy Alliance, revived the order of the Jesuits in all their power. And do Americans need to be told what Jesuits are? They are a secret society, a sort of Masonic order with super added features of revolting odiousness and a thousand times more dangerous. An order so skilled in all the arts of deception that even in Catholic countries, in Italy itself, it became intolerable and the people required its suppression. And that's from Samuel Morse. Of course, Morse was not alone back in the 1830s and 40s. Many writers were absolutely convinced that the hordes of Irish and other Catholic immigrants coming to the great Protestant Republic would blindly obey the orders of their priests and bishops and vote to, quoting here, decide our elections, perplex our policy, inflame and divide the nation, break the bond of our union, and throw down our free institutions. Conda also notes,
1: anti-Catholic organizations spread the fact that a catholic-orchestrated run on the banks caused a panic of 1893 and they circulated a fraudulent papal encyclical giving the date when catholics should begin exterminating all
0: heretics And again, because this was a genuine conspiracy theory, unlike the previously discussed anti-Masonic fervor, it was like many other such theories, self-sustaining, because it insisted not only on the provable fact that there were more Catholics in America in the mid-19th century than was the case in previous eras, but also on the totally bogus idea that these Catholics were the tip of the spear of an international conspiracy to destroy Protestant America. Unfortunately, much as the QAnon conspiracy seems on the verge of doing in our period, Pending the outcome of November's election. The anti-Catholic conspiracy eventually yielded a brand new political movement, one that is particularly aptly named.
1: The Know-Nothings.
0: Yeah, I get it. A bunch of conspiracy theorist anti-immigrant dumbfucks get together to do stupid shit and they literally call themselves the Know-Nothings, as if blissfully unaware of how easy they would be to ridicule.
1: It would be like the aforementioned QAnons eventually formed a political party called
0: The Credulords.
1: Or boomers for drooling insanity, or the damn it, did you forget to give grandpa his pills again?
0: party. Which, of course, they still might. Anywho, the Know Nothing movement was actually named after the response that any member was supposed to give if asked about the group or its doings. That is, Sir,
1: I know nothing.
0: Longtime listeners will recognize this as being Socrates' favorite saying as well, but it's safe to presume the similarity ends there. So the Know Nothings emerged out of the discontent of working people, mostly in the North. Who were squeezed by the changing economy brought on by railroads and increased competition? They misdirected their anger toward immigrants who were supposedly taking American jobs.
3: They took our jobs.
2: They took our, jobs. They took our, jobs. They took our
0: Most of their ire was aimed at the Irish who were arriving in large numbers and whose seemingly exotic Catholic rituals struck the native-born white Protestant population as positively satanic. This was a worldview they had largely inherited from their Puritan forebears. As David Bryan Davis puts it in Fear of Conspiracy,
1: Protestants in a world divided by religious and ideological conflict, the American colonists inevitably looked upon the Catholic Church as a source of a worldwide conspiracy against liberty. They defined their own society as a purified and de-Romanized extension of England, and thus as a polar opposite of Catholic Europe. A threat which runs through much of the literature of counter-subversion is the argument that any threat to American Protestant is a threat to freedom, order, and morality.
0: As you certainly
3: might expect, this attitude eventually led to violence. 1844 in Brooklyn. A mob of white Protestant males calling themselves Native Americans marched toward St. Paul's Catholic Church on Court Street, intent on burning it to the ground. As they proceeded, their numbers increased to several hundred with shouts of, the church must come down, the church must be gutted, damn the Irish. When they arrived, a sizable group of Irish immigrants were waiting to defend it with bludgeons, axes, and rifles. But before they came to blows, Brooklyn's mayor called out the military and dispersed the crowds. From the 1830s to the 1850s, such scenes were duplicated in nearly every major American city where immigrants gathered in large numbers, but not all ended so peacefully. In Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, convents and churches were burned to the ground. From Kentucky to Maine, riots left Catholic immigrants and Protestant natives dead in the street. In short, anti-Catholicism had reached a fever pitch in American life, unseen before and perhaps since.
0: No-nothings tarred and feathered priests, burned churches, and led a full-scale riot in Kentucky. But just as importantly, these sentiments led to the creation of the American Party, also known, confusingly, as the Native American Party.
1: We're sure the actual Native Americans got a real kick out of that
0: name. Anyway, this ill-named group gained members when the Whig Party fell apart in the 1850s over slavery, nativism, and temperance.
1: Oh yeah, if you needed another reason not to like these dudes, they hated booze.
0: And while they scored massive gains in the 1854 congressional and state elections in the Northeast, all of it came undone by 1856, the rise of the Republican Party, and its focus on anti-slavery over nativist causes. Of course, the anti-Catholic sentiment continued, though it became more subterranean in our body politic. But it's worth remembering that even in 1960, candidate John Kennedy was expected pointedly to assure the American public that he would follow the Constitution of the United States and not the dictates of the Pope if he became president.
3: No, no religious barrier. But because I am a Catholic, and no Catholic has ever been elected president, the real issues in this campaign have been obscured, perhaps deliberately, in some quarters less responsible than this. So it is apparently necessary for me to state once again, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote.
0: The anti-Catholic sentiment faded over the 19th century, but by the early 20th, another obsession with an immigrant religious group had reared its ugly head to a degree never before seen in the U.S.
1: You know what's coming, right?
0: right? Yes, it's our old adversary, conspiracist anti-Semitism. But in an ironic twist, one of the chief promulgators of this poison during the pre-World War II period
1: when, you know, it might have been nice for Americans to get less anti-Jewish and more supportive of helping oppressed refugees fleeing the Nazi nightmare
0: was in fact the most famous Catholic priest in 1930s America. Apparently, he missed the history lesson on how religious bigotry and conspiracy thinking could impact an oppressed religious minority in America the way it had his own, the Catholics. Asshole.
4: In all countries, Jews are in the minority. They have no nation of their own. They have no flag. The World Almanac states that there are only 15 million Jews in all the world. And only 4 million resident in North America. Certainly they are in the minority. But a closely woven minority in their racial tendencies. A powerful minority in their influence a minority endowed with an aggressiveness, an initiative, which despite all obstacles, has carried their sons to the pinnacle of success in journalism, in radio, in finance, in all the sciences and arts. Thus with these facilities at their disposal, no story of persecution was ever told one half so well, one half so thoroughly, as the story of this $400 million reprisal which culminated a series of persecutions. Perhaps, may I resubmit, this is attributable to the fact that Jews, through their native ability, have risen to such high places in radio and in press and in finance. Perhaps this persecution is only the coincidental last straw which has broken the back of this generation's patience.
0: Father Charles Coughlin was, in his time, one of the most famous people in America, thanks to the huge popularity of his regular radio broadcasts. Sure, there had been anti-Semitism oozing its noxious way around America throughout our history, with occasional flare-ups of violence, but the real spur to full-on anti-Jewish conspiracy lunacy was undoubtedly the influx of Ashkenazi Jews
1: That is, roughly, Jewish people from Eastern Europe and Russia as opposed to the Middle East.
0: Over the three decades from 1890 to the 1920s, Just as we saw with Irish Catholic immigration in the 19th century, this Jewish immigration wave both dug up existing prejudices and generated new conspiracies against the newcomers. We actually covered some of the most noxious results of this flowering of conspiracist hate in our second-ever episode, which discussed the notorious anti-Jewish conspiracy tract, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. As part of that show, we noted that, starting in the 1920s, legendary industrialist Henry Ford used his outsized influence on American society to spread horrific lies about the Jewish people and their supposed plan to take over the world and crush Christianity. Ford's efforts, which included publishing a conspiracist anti-Semitic newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, as well as famously including a copy of the Protocols for free with every purchase of a brand new Model T, certainly helped to stoke the fires of intolerance in the decade before the rise of the Nazis led a new rush of refugees to attempt to escape persecution. But while Ford may have seeded the ground in the 20s, Father Coughlin's immensely popular radio show made him perhaps the most important voice screaming about the perfidy and supposed communist menace posed by the Jews. Having started out as a priest with a genuine concern for the poor and downtrodden, he was initially a supporter of Roosevelt and the New Deal. But Coughlin rapidly soured on both, tying them into his dark, suspicious view of a world in which sinister money-changers—
1: Remember, money changers, which refers to a story in which Jesus drove a group of same from the temple in Jerusalem, is always code for money-hungry Jews.
0: We're on the verge of subverting the American way of life and grinding us all under the heel of communism. Coghlan's outlook for both democracy and capitalism was also incredibly bleak, but fortunately he saw for his beloved downtrodden white people a clear and perfect solution. Fascism.
1: You mean he had fascist tendencies?
0: No, I mean he thought the cure for America's ills was to scrap this democracy bullshit and opt for pure D hardcore fascism. Like, he embraced Mussolini and Hitler, blamed the Jews for their own persecution, and suggested that, if anything, once he and those who followed him rose to power, the Jews would have it worse under his American brand than it did with the Austrian guy whose mustache made it look as if his nose had shit itself.
1: We know he used that joke in a previous episode, but he is really proud of it. So let's cut into slack.
0: I'm not kidding, by the way. Here's an actual quote from Father Douchebag himself.
1: When we get through with the Jews in America, they'll think the treatment they received in Germany was nothing.
0: That audio I included a bit earlier of Coglin ranting about the Jews, that was him blaming Jewish people for Kristallnacht, the legendary night of terror in which Hitler's followers beat and murdered Jews, smashed their synagogues, and otherwise carried out a campaign of unmitigated violence.
1: And he blamed the Jewish people for bringing this on themselves? I'm no Catholic, but couldn't someone above priest and below pope do something about this?
0: Sure, but the problem was that Coughlin's bishop was a big fan of his hateful rhetoric, so he was simply allowed to drone on and on, stoking the vilest tendencies in his audience, convincing them that Jews were responsible for all the world's ills, etc. So how did they ever get rid of this motherfucker? Eventually, two things happened. The bishop who supported him died and was replaced by a new guy who didn't look so fondly on Coughlin's ranting. But perhaps more importantly, Coughlin continued his spit-fleck diatribes in favor of isolationism, that is, keeping America out of World War II, even after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which was not a popular stance at the time, but only after he'd done just a massive amount of damage to a huge number of innocent people. And with that, we're almost ready to get to our grand discussion of a real, true, honest-to-God conspiracy that really happened. But before we do, we just want to mention, in passing, a great observation by Michael Barcoon in his book A Culture of Conspiracy. Barcoon notes that these anti-Masonic, anti-Semitic, and anti-Catholic narratives we've just discussed are so deeply embedded in American conspiracy culture that they continue, to this day, to pop up in the most unexpected places. For example, UFO conspiracists often reproduce the biases of 19th century American nativism, concentrating on the malevolence of the three groups that obsessed nativists at that time, Catholics, Freemasons, and Jews.
1: So the conspiracists who deal exclusively with the idea that alien spacecrafts are visiting Earth, they still find a way to obsess over Jews, Masons, and
0: Catholics. Well, presumably space Jews, space Catholics, and I'm going to say space No. You've
1: already got your mason pun. Let it go.
0: Fair enough. But now, after our discussions of a number of historical conspiracy manias that span both the history and prehistory of the U.S., we hope it's painfully clear to all of you that there has never been a period when this country has not been in the grip of some lunacy or another. But now, it's time to jump beyond Father Coughlin, another 35 years or so, to a period that's within the lifespan of some of those listening to this show, where we'll discuss one of our favorite paranoid conspiracy theorists of all time the 37th president of the United States and the trickiest dick you ever laid eyes on.